This is Aliens and Artists, part two of our conversation with Ann Tyler. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Ann Tyler is a licensed psychotherapist specializing in gifted children and anomalous experiences. She is founder of the Tyler Institute. She served in the Air Force National Guard, and she's an experiencer. Anne's work in the Air Force Guard intersects with her history as an experiencer. She was part of a clandestine program which trained carefully selected people in out-of-body reconnaissance to spy on highly advanced non-human entities. In this episode, we discuss human sovereignty, resilience, a shared childhood experience of missing time, an abduction event which occurred on prom night, abduction experiences in a past life. But first, I recently had a conversation with Whitley Strieber in which he shared his reflections on meeting Ann Tyler and how he feels human sovereignty factors in the phenomenon. I met Ann at the Archives of the Impossible Conference in a funny way. I was in the archives themselves and I was looking through letters that are there that my wife Ann had collected and there's a few thousand of them there. And strangely enough, well, a woman recognized me, which isn't unusual. And I had a surprising sort of nudge, I guess, would be the best way to put it, to talk to her, which is, you know, I'm usually polite to people. I try to always be polite to people, but this was different. I felt I should engage with her. And so we began to talk. And then we had lunch together with a friend of hers. And I realized that something had happened here, that she was going to be involved in all of this stuff, in the whole experience or phenomenon. I found out she was a psychologist, or not a psychologist, a psychotherapist, excuse me. She's not a psychologist. And I realized that you know she could really be of help in a community that is so needful of people who can help others cope with strange experiences without referring them to a psychiatrist for incarceration or using drugs and so forth. In other words, she wouldn't assume they were crazy. So I befriended her and kept up with her. She had some remarkable experiences with the white moth, which I'm sure she's talked about. And it was clear to me that this had something to do with Anne. My wife was engaged in bringing this person into this community. So I followed up with her and we began a correspondence. And then I got her on my show, on my podcast, Dreamland. And that's really how it began. And we still correspond frequently. She sends me an email every Sunday she was apparently, she says she was told to do this by Anne, and that's very like Anne, because Anne was a, we were in the Gurdjieff work together, and it's very challenging, and Anne expected you to do this. And in other words, when you made a commitment and Anne was involved, you would be expected to fulfill that commitment. And so I'm, I'm not at all surprised that this came from Anne and the Anne, our Anne that we're talking about, religiously does it every week. And I don't know how long it'll go on, but it's going on now. And I respond every week 
and she's in a journey. She's on quite a journey. She's on a journey of internal exploration, a contact-related journey, whatever that may be, and a journey finding other professionals and finding experiencers who would like her support. And it all started when I walked into that archive, and there she sat. (laughs) That's how it started. Where do you feel human sovereignty situates in the human, non-human dynamic? You and I met at Esalen. I gave a talk on tools for human sovereignty at that gathering. And it features in this one-on-one work. And I'd love to hear your reflections on this part of the puzzle. You've done a tremendous amount of work on this, how to have a happy and fulfilling life as an experiencer. Well, having a, a happy and fulfilling life despite the pressure, the human sovereignty issue is a very significant one. I think that we had a problem that started back in the 50s when the United States Air Force, without the public having any real idea of what was happening, and certainly there was never any public input and probably very little input from anyone outside of the White House itself about whether or not to do this, began shooting at them. We shot first and asked questions later when they, there was an incursion into restricted airspace, particularly in 1952 is the one year where it happened, it seems to me, a lot. There were armed conflicts. And I think that this has colored everything that happened since, in particular to the close encounter witnesses and experiencers. I don't know exactly what would have happened differently If we had, instead of having this isolated into a military context, if it had been opened up to, for example, anthropologists and behaviorists, might have had a very different way of approaching what was happening in 1952. If you'll remember, there was the famous flyovers of Washington. Earlier than that, in June, there had been an incursion over one of the nuclear labs, and It had been met with the jet where the pilot reported that it had seemed to try to ram his plane. But this was not Hanford or Lawrence Livermore. Those are labs where they were actively designing and manufacturing atomic bombs. It was Oak Ridge, which just two years before had been repurposed to non-military purposes. And as soon as that happened, it became a focal point of incursions. But the restricted airspace was still there. There was nobody to say, well, why are they concentrating on the one lab we have that is being used for peaceful purposes? Instead, the military reacted by basically going on to combat air patrols, which is what the plane I just described was doing when these there were incursions into these spaces. Then the flyovers occurred in Washington. But now what do you see? You see interest taken in a lab that is working on nukes for peaceful purposes, and then a flyover of Washington, D.C., that is simply a display. Nothing is done. There's no indication whatsoever of any hostile intent. It's, they're just showing themselves. Then in September of that year, there was an event that 
resulted in the appearance of what state police all over the Northeast thought were crashing airplanes and crashing in flames that were apparently not. They were apparently UFOs, and something had happened out over the Atlantic Ocean that had damaged them. All of this is simply hidden. It's hidden. There's a wonderful book called Shoot Them Down by a man named Frank Fischino that goes into great detail about all of this. It was published in 2007. Frank had to publish it himself. No one would publish it. No publisher would touch it. Maybe partly because they might have known on some level that government preferred not to see things like that published. But mostly it was because the public convinced that this is all nonsense doesn't buy books like that. But the fact that the public had been convinced of that is a problem. And the fact that the visitors are getting shot at is a problem. I think that the abductions probably have something to do with them trying to basically figure us out. Because given that their initial approaches were peaceful, why were we so belligerent? And we experiencers live with this. This is our lives. And the mind behind this is very strange in comparison to our mind. It's logical, but it thinks differently, especially in the detailed process of an interaction. It has a different type of consciousness of some kind, and we have no idea how the two fit together. So that's kind of where we are. And the experiencers bear the brunt of it on many different levels. First, there is the visitor contacts, which are getting better for most of us, actually, including me. Second, there is the universal public opprobrium. And third, there is the denial that we are even should be part of this. People like Lou Elizondo will not even interview on Dreamland. They won't come near me because they don't want to be tainted by that brush of the experiencer, the nutcases, when in fact we are the leading edge of this. And it's one of the reasons Anne is so valuable. And I'm so grateful to Anne for coming into this because she's good at what she does. She's a real pro. And we need lots of pros in this to help us figure out how we should deal with something that has been given to us essentially by the foolishness and lack of proper planning of others, namely the military. Regarding that progressive improvement in the nature of contact between some experiencers and some non-human entities, do you feel it's an indication that human sovereignty is of interest to or is valued by the non-humans as well? Are they desirous of more mature, developed human counterparts? I wouldn't be so quick to assume that we would know what they think or even that they have an idea of what sovereignty is. That's not clear to me. I think that they are very, very different from us. I think they're structurally different. Their biology is different. And to some extent, they don't even have biology, I don't think, but they their perceptions are different from ours. I think if you put one of us beside one of them looking in exactly the same direction, the descriptions of what was being seen would be incomprehensible to each other. And therefore, 
I'm not sure that it's possible right now, given the state of knowledge we have, we have no fundamental ground of certainty here. I don't think we can make decisions about the level of interest in our sovereignty. I think that what we have to do is simply be reactive and hope that this gradually brings the thing into focus. Well, for example, over the past few months since April, I've had a series of horrendous experiences, horrendous, unbelievable, terrible, many in many ways the worst I've ever had. One of them involving an attempt to drug me and use some kind of psychoactive substance on me and things like that, real intrusions that are physical in nature. And that's new. I haven't had physical intrusions since the 80s. So how much progress does that represent? I don't know. Do you feel any clarity as to the responsible party where the intrusion is coming from? No, I don't know what it's coming from. I think there's a human element to it or an element that appears to be human. I'm pretty sure there is. But it's not human in the same sense that you and I are human. In other words, it's not my lab sneaking around because, well, I'm not going to go into why it isn't, but it isn't. Believe me, I can assure you that there's something else going on. And I don't know exactly what it is, but, you know, we've got a long journey still ahead of us. This isn't over by any means. And there are other elements of it at the same time. I would say that I have had (laughs) enormous and extraordinary support. So that's why we need people like Anne. (laughs) Because she can help with stuff like this, help you cope. I have to close my eyes and sleep in this apartment every night. It ain't easy. Given the struggles, would you encourage or dissuade others from embarking on the type of odyssey you have been living over the decades? It's not up to us. I don't think anybody's ever been able to induce contact on their own from our side. It either happens to you or it doesn't. Whoever's out there, it's their call as to who they're interested in and who they are. So there's nothing for you. There's no answer. My only answer is that, you know, do your best if it happens to you to try to make it something of value to you. To go deeper into my spiritual life, to find a deeper level of peace. And I'm thriving despite this. The essential question of this whole experience is that. You know, I know there are a lot of people who get all sweetness and light from the visitors. You're not talking to one of them. But I I wouldn't trade it for the world. This is my life, and it's precious to me. They're precious to me despite all this trouble I have. I've gone on an extraordinary spiritual journey with them over the years, and it's not over yet. It still goes on. And I've made these things part of it on purpose. I've made them part of it. I will make this my own, mine. And if I start to stumble, I'm going to call Anne. <laughs> okay, let's get back to Anne Tyler now. So I think that question about, you know, submission, feeling control from the outside versus surrender and how much we feel our own agency and uh, sovereignty from the inside is a really good question to always be thinking about, to be examining in our own life. 
And I think that applies across the board, you know, whether it's physical world relationships or in these non-physical realities where there's also non-human entities, that this should always be a question that's on our minds. You know, it's hard to figure out um, relationships in general. And when it's in the non-physical world, there's so many more mysteries, unknown, and complications to figure out answers to these questions. And I don't know how many answers we'll ever have, but what we always have are practices and intentions. I didn't just write a manifesto that, that you know, described my commitment to where I wanted to head and how to handle this new experiencer life and declaring my human sovereignty and helping others. But I continued to develop it into practices, which is manifesting the manifesto is what I called it. This is a choice of will, and this means a commitment to putting in place practices that will keep me on the path to take actions that are in alignment with my intentions. In this context, surrender then becomes a choice. And it's part of my spiritual and consciousness development path. And it's not just a surrender to others' will or others' ideas or beliefs, but it's actually a surrender to the process, to trust in the subtle realms. You know, it breaks down old beliefs and blockages that may be standing in the way. That's what I'm committed to. This this process actually releases energy, takes us on the path of evolution, and you can't pursue a spiritual path without, you know, multiple surrenders at different points. And they're not easy. It can be really uncomfortable, but there's I, there's so much bliss and release on the other side. And it takes us further on our path. What I've done is develop my practices further from what I already had in place before this awakening of experiences to kind of take it a few clicks over. Because it's always important to put daily practices in place for anything in these subtle realms. So the practice that I developed was taken from other other experts, sources, and previous practices. And basically, the most important thing, I think, is declaring our intention. And that's what I did in my manifesto, my intention. And I do that every day. It includes declaring boundaries. It includes protection practices that I always have in place, that I have the intention of becoming more discerning, developing human sovereignty and agency. And I think intentions is one of our most powerful tools. It's, it's everything. It protects us. To me, declaring intention, that's human sovereignty. And one of my core intentions is to develop discernment as a practice. You know, we can't know answers all the time, but we can stay on the path of trying to figure out what's the most healthy for us. Again, living in the we, as you, as you have called it, living in a community, consulting lots of other people that are experts in different areas, you know, with all these tantric practices that I was given that weren't a part of my lineage. I, you know, you sent me to Kimberly Lafferty, who's also done one of these podcast interviews. She's been a powerful ally and teacher for me to make sure that what's happening with me and the path that I'm on is the healthiest possible. And I've consulted many other people that do energy work, medical intuitive, shamans, 
highly psychic people, academically oriented. Physical issues, I'm always in contact with my doctors. It takes a whole team. And we don't throw anything out as we're developing the subtle realms. We actually, you know, got to include everything. This is a holistic process. We're holistic people. It was interesting to me that the more people I talked to, the larger the community is that I embraced and put around me with support, the easier it got to know and eventually trust inner guides too. You know, I felt like there was a lot of people that had my back. Kali, the Hindu goddess, ended up identifying herself as one of my guides. I didn't even know who that was. I had to look it up. But having people in place around me that had similar experiences and had more knowledge in some of these areas really helped. One thing I did with my discernment practices is I kind of developed categories. I wanted to check in whenever something was happening or I was getting messages. I made these categories very simple. When I got requests, messages, whatever it is, it was either, yes, I agree with that. That agrees with my core imperative of service. Maybe I'll think about it. Let's see how that develops. And no, I'm not going to do that unless I have more reasons. And hell no, that does not fit anything that I feel like doing. That's where, you know, the choice comes in. Being flexible is important, but also having provisional beliefs and stands along the way. One of my favorite sayings by Sean S. Bjorn Hargens, another great teacher of all things subtle energy and anomalous, says, you know, to take things seriously but hold it lightly. And to me, that that completely envelops this position that helps us orient to this path this life takes on. One thing that I focus on that also gives me human sovereignty in addition to intention and discernment is resilience. Because None of us know what's going to happen to us, you know, to ourselves tomorrow, anywhere, whether it's on the physical plane or in other realms. And as much as we use skillful means to prevent bad things from happening or traumatic things, it's still with not in our our control completely. You know, we do the best we can, but we always have resilience. You know, that is something that we have within our power as human beings. And if you have the intention that you will always do your best to be as resilient as possible, that is extremely powerful. To me, that's the core of of human sovereignty because it's an actual truth. You know, everything arises within us. It's all us and everything truly exists. That's true too. We can't escape suffering, but we can commit to a path of post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress, no matter how bad it gets. And to me, that's where I place a lot more trust. doesn't mean we're not going to get uncomfortable and, and have bad things happen, but we can use it for our learning and turn it around. To me, that's evolutionary learning. You know, there is one book in Sean's class that he's teaching right now that has really um, illustrated this position. And there's one quote in there that's specifically powerful to me. And he says, it's by Kurt Leland. He says, you know, it's important to pursue psychic development and what it means to be a multidimensional human as a spiritual practice. And it's ideal to create a spiritual lifestyle conducive to adventures in consciousness that occur while we're functioning normally on the physical plane or while we're exploring higher planes during meditation or sleep. 
Such a lifestyle allows our multidimensionality to develop safely and organically. And to me, that's beautiful because it normalizes that this is part of us. This is not others. It is part of a community. We are developing relationships. All relationships take negotiation no matter where they're at. So this has been the position that has helped me along this path. So last, last November, about six weeks in to when these experiences consciously started for me, I went through that strike when I was really questioning whether what was happening to me was something I wanted to deal with or what it meant. It was confusing at the time. It was the first time I was encountering some of those altered states and energies and influences from others. And after I, I worked through that and found a, a more stable position, I immediately engaged back in with more trust and went through more surrender. And it seemed to be kind of a gateway into more experiences happening. And I call the last couple of weeks in November sort of the tech, technology and training weeks. <laughs> there was a lot of messages and experiences I was given. Three of them, there seems to be always a series of three, involved space travel. One night after I did my usual spiritual practices and protection circle, Sometimes that's when I get communications or things happening. And this particular night, I got really surprised. It was actually the night of the lunar eclipse last fall. I was taken by beings out into space, like actual space. They showed me how to get there. And it wasn't that far. It was between the earth and the moon. First thing they showed me when I got there was some kind of huge blanket of some kind. It seemed to be like a familiar object to me. There's lots of quilt makers in my family, and it was energetic and lighted, and it quickly expanded into millions of points of light. I came to learn that as they were teaching and showing me things or helping me remember, they would use points of light quite frequently to illuminate things to draw my attention to it. As I was looking at all these points of light, at 3D space and all the objects were immersed in, it kind of disappeared. And they were telling me different messages about how there is a network of some kind that connects everything together. They described different aspects of this being how communication took place, location of where things are at, some kind of transport network. They, parts of their energy merged with mine and they were showing me how I could stay in my own energy system and move around and change shape. I could become more diverse or concentrated. They showed me how this movement worked. It wasn't like floating in space. It was way too fast. I think they were, you know, sort of showing me astral travel and reminding me of something that I could do, a capacity. At one point, I was looking at Earth, and it was fascinating. And I, I remembered what someone said once about how their head became Earth. And the moment I had that thought, it happened instantly. And, and these beings just sort of helped me retreat from that. You know, it was a very intense experience. But they did hold back with me 
further away from Earth, and they had me look at it for a long time. And I merged with them, and they there was this deep sense of awe and intense sadness. It would, it was almost too hard to bear the combination of these feelings. And I felt like I had to stay merged with their energy to be able to contain it to some extent. I began to feel my physical body that was in my bed and it was crying and shaking and even convulsing a little bit. It was the sensations of the earth and all the energy there and the people And I'm not sure how this experience ended, but the first thing I remember is taking a deep breath all of a sudden, like I hadn't been breathing for an hour. And I had a very spacious mind. I started to come back into the room. And although my body felt exerted and like I'd been hit with a lightning bolt for an hour, it it felt very clear and sharp in my mind. And it was a very profound experience. The next morning, on the other side of the lunar eclipse, I had a second space travel experience. The first thing I saw was visions of massive star systems in my body and in my physical visual field. There were these quick glimpses. And all of a sudden, I was out in deep space And I was being shown these constellation of stars and planets. I'm not even sure what all the bodies were, but they were lighting them up again to show me this anchor location of some kind. They were showing me how to move around again. They were giving me lots of different scientific reasons of things about energetic selves, how to dissolve across huge expanses of space, even across galaxies and how we don't come apart and that, you know, we're, we're always, you know, sort of cohesive in our energy. I saw different light beings there. There was usually what I think was a mantid. There was other light beings of teachers and guides on these trips. I ended up back in my body again. I was very highly alert, but pretty dizzy, a little shaky. And I had a, one of my shoulders was kind of out of joint that morning. It was at that point where I was kind of having that reaction of space travel sounds really strange. Like, how am I ever going to explain this one? Talking to experiencers is very normalizing because this happens to others. But I was sort of crossing into another threshold again of, oh, I don't want to be this strange. I don't, (laughs) haven't I already got enough strangeness happening? But again, sort of moving through that, a statement you made once really describes it well. You know, sometimes we feel like we're giving up more real estate (laughs) in human territory. (laughs) There's sort of equal grief and joy as you're moving through these. One thing that I always got in these experiences was messages about death and the energy of death. It seems like these beings are always talking about time, the collapsing of time. There was a lot of going out of these experiences and coming back to the world. There's almost like integration. It feels like when you go out in these, you're being cracked wide open and then you come back. And, you know, I noticed marks on my body again, new different kinds of strange marks. And so it it hits physical reality 
in that way. And there's just this integration going back and forth. One thing I noticed about these really big experiences is every time I went through one of those, there'd be like two pounds permanently off my body. And even though I really liked these astral travel, these, these tech descriptions, this instruction that I was given, there was nothing that felt overly traumatic about it at all. It, it was actually pretty cool. But there was such a physical exertion after these. I would get really strong temporal distortions, especially when I had those two within 24 hours. Really hard to track time the next day. There was all kinds of energy fluctuations and body vibrations. Time would speed up and slow down and just disappear altogether a lot. And there was, there was a third space trip that happened a few days later. And I went back to that anchor spot. This was a little bit more intense training because instead of them giving me more instruction, they basically just kind of said, okay, now you do these things. And it took a little bit to figure it out. So when I first got out there, I was kind of playing around with that, moving within these, these networks and just kind of playing around with it and not really paying attention to them. Because I thought it was really cool. I liked doing that. And, <laughs> and at one point, all of a sudden, I, <laughs> I felt this sense. I don't even know how to describe it. The way I described it to you was I felt like it was the equivalent of getting a, a mantis eye roll. You know, like they're just rolling their eyes at you. And it was absolutely hysterical to me. And I remember when you told me that, oh, wow, you know, other people have actually described that same thing like getting that same sense, that was, I mean, that was validating, you know, when other experiencers have an odd experience like that, you know, that, an, that some kind of alien has given them an eye roll, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> these humans. And what they were giving me in terms of messages at that point was, okay, it's time to get down to work. They're always, all right, let's get down to work. No time to play. And they were telling me to get out of my head and out of my eyes. And I that was the essence of the message they were giving me. And I, I remember asking me like the witness, like, you don't want me to do that? Like, what does that mean? They were kind of being sarcastic again, at least that, you know, of course, that's my interpretation. They're like, oh, these humans, they have such big heads, meaning they're always in their heads thinking too much. Again, really funny to me, but not funny to them at the moment. I was like, okay, well, let's just see what this is. I'll experiment with, I don't know how to do this or exactly what they're asking. I started to try to sink into it, but I got the sensation of putting my head underwater for the first time. Felt a little intimidating. I didn't really know what I was getting immersed into. So it, it had a weird feeling to it. So I asked them, maybe I was asking for hints or, you know, what are you talking about? And they're like, no, you need to do this on your own. I remember something you had said you know, when we're dealing with some of these things in the subtle realm, you know, think of no effort or what comes naturally. So I immediately imagined my body com completely surrendering and doing a backward swan dive into this space. And it was really helpful to surrender. I've used that imagery over and over. It felt really good to dive backwards, not knowing where I was going to land, getting out of my head and eyes and into these other senses. It felt like at first, you know, I was in some kind of white box or tunnel and it, I'm like, ah, that doesn't feel quite right, but that's interesting. So I kept diving backwards a few times. I felt 
as though I was sort of coming out of that highly head-driven space. I suddenly arrived back with them, whoever these guides or teachers are, and everything was looked completely different. The only way I can describe it is that face was inverted. Instead of seeing the physical objects of planets and stars, they were now not so visible and everything else was alive and bright. It was almost as though it's the space between. The empty space was more alive than what we now think as objects. And I don't know if this was shifting realms or what sense I was using. That's, I don't know if I'll figure that out. Maybe I will sometime. But it was really interesting to be in that space. They were basically kind of telling me, this is where we live. This is where more connection happens. They gave me a lot of information about that. And what was really interesting is that my physical body at that moment got severe leg cramps while I was laying there in bed. And I suddenly became aware of my physical body and had to get up really fast to get those severe leg cramps to stop. And they were giving me these messages. And they said, notice that you can hold this awareness out here where we're at while you're seeing your world and showing me how I could do both at the same time. I got back into bed eventually, and there was an amazing vibration everywhere. And I noticed that sound without sound that's so alive. So that was another one of these space space trips. I noticed more time distortions, but also great clarity and bliss and joy after these trips. The physical toll was significant. A lot of deep tiredness kind of sunk in, but everything that I felt was also wrapped in high vibrations. Didn't really know what to do with the experiences other than that's really interesting. It sort of ignited a few weeks of a lot of communication of messages and instructions. It went on and on. I have so many pages. They talked a lot about energy currents, how to perceive different types of energy that we create as humans, how we and they can travel among these energy currents and in these different places. It seemed to all be focused on consciousness development and where the spaces are, where there can be more co-creation of relationships. That's a lot to unpack what they gave me. One thing they told me that had a little more precision to it was that when they're working with us and energy, what they hope for humans is that what they're doing can incite insight, which means give us impulses that will help us look inward to develop these other senses where more of this connection can take place. Sounds like an initiation into the cartography of the great within of the cosmos. As you were brought deeper into the folds of these dimensional map systems, which include how they communicate, how location is acquired, How conveyance occurs? Was there a softening of the divide between what we typically experience as the interior versus the exterior, inner and outer? How were such categories affected? Inside, outside, past, present, future, etc. That's a really good question because I feel like this phase of teaching I was going through really collapsed the categories a lot. They kept telling me to really trust 
what I was sensing and experiencing. This is experiential learning. They didn't want me, you know, looking up stuff at this point and reading it, yet they wanted me to remember by experiencing it. You know, this experience is always a conduit. And all of these experiences had that sense of especially, you know, being out in deep space and then being in your body and then noticing that, oh, well, it's all right here. You know, like wherever you're at in physical space, they showed me several times how time collapses when you go into the subtle realm. The illusion of time, how important it was to surrender into seeing what these non-physical realities, what the nature and texture of them were, and how embedded it all is within our physical reality and how we can touch into it at all times. And so the categories really disappear. They were basically kind of showing me you don't have to leave to go into these places. And as a matter of fact, the experiences that followed that were more of these locations, but embedded realities at the same time. So after this, it ignited several experiences that took place in my bedroom through meditation and contemplations. One night, I was laying there wondering if there was going to be anything happening, and it was very quiet. I thought, oh, I got to go to bed tonight. But then I heard this loud voice that said, open your eyes. And I just, okay. (laughs) And I looked up, and there were several physical manifestations taking place in the 3D space in my room. And there was, first of all, these symbols and moving lights, very highly detailed inside of circles, were coming in from the left and sort of rotating around. And they were so highly detailed, I wanted to be able to see them or even draw them, but they were moving too fast. The next manifestation I saw was that what I described as inverted space, but I wasn't out in space. It was actually right there in my room. So they were showing me, oh, you know, this is embedded reality. It's not just out there. It looked a little bit different. It was more busy, like there was more going on. It was very peaceful. And the third manifestation was those pinpoints of light everywhere that were lighting up this network. And this was absolutely amazing. It was everywhere in my room. It was through the objects. And at this point, I thought, oh, I'm just getting up to go to the bathroom. This is really cool. And I walked through it and saw that it was everywhere through the walls, through furniture. And there were tiny streaks of light kind of flying through the dots and there were trails. Looking back, I'm like, why didn't I explore more, uh, more of that in the room? But I just, laid, I just laid back down and kind of got quiet and just sort of looked at this with awe. And then the, <laughs> it kind of phased out. And then all of a sudden I saw another manifestation. I would get like these waves of light happen. I saw a very large head and down a little bit further of a mantis being phased into my physical reality. Again, this was lighted being almost as though it was sticking in his head to say hello or something. And again, very highly detailed, outlined in light. And it phased in twice. It was so incredible to see the amount of detail. I could hardly take it in and how bright it was. It was almost like an orange glow light. I was completely open to this and happy during these manifestations. I thought they were just really interesting. But then I just went to bed. So (laughs) as always, it's like, wow, go to sleep. There was another night where 
those waves of light were coming in. And all of a sudden, I got a really intense visual of a color, like there was deep indigo and purple that was luminescent everywhere. It was infused with all kinds of other colors, like it was very unusual color. It came in with a black border and it, it, it morphed into diffuse edges. As it was in my visual field, it morphed and shifted and changed in vibration. And I was told to use that almost like a blanket again to stabilize the energy vibrations in my body. And it came into the blanket that I was covered up with and saturated through the blanket and into my body, almost like it went into every cell. And I could feel what that felt like, like I was being shown a way to manage the energy in my body. I had lots of uh, symbols again manifesting in the visual field and lots of those pinpoints of light. At this point, I was about eight weeks into these experiences. My days were still good with energy. It was getting pretty exhausting at this point with some of the larger ones, but it was things were going much better. I felt a little more stable. I was more interested in the experiences and curious about them. And I was definitely accessing you know, the support group regularly and talking to a lot of people. And I was always amazed that no matter how strange my experiences became, that there was always someone else who had elements of or similarities to relate to it. So that is what happened through November of last year. So in the process of engaging this new experiencer life consciously, in December of 2021, last year, I was starting to get more highly curious about wanting to know what happened to me earlier in my life, if there were other anomalous events. I remembered that you had mentioned that genealogy of the strange as a tool to possibly do that. And when you first told me, I was like, no, nothing strange has ever happened. And that doesn't apply to me. But as it progressed, I was thinking, well, looks like there might be something there, but I'm probably never going to know. I'll just have to move on from here. But I was still intrigued by the idea of this genealogy, the strange, and could I know anymore if I truly wanted to? I mean, we all have to decide how much we want to know if, if that's going to be possible. So we began to discuss signaling. Times in life where things felt out of proportion, like reactions, my own reactions, other people's reactions to what we thought happened or how to get around brick walls, thinking about what's strange or weird or what felt that way, entering through feelings or just seeing where memories might land. And I thought, oh, I don't know if anything's going to come out of this. So. I just started thinking, well, what do I have at my disposal? Like, what are starting points? What do I know? So one strategy I had at my disposal was to see what I actually said to myself. I am a writer. I have lots of journals. I have a lot of fiction writing that I've done over the past 30 years. <laughs> one, one. One of the genealogy of the strange is that I developed at first was for you and I, Stuart, which you know, because you and I have our own strange history, having become aware of you through the integral movement. But for whatever reason, which is becoming more apparent now, I seem to check in on you a few more times than others. 
just to see what you were up to. And as we were starting through this process, I realized there was a lot of other interesting events in our history. You know, we were both born in Iowa. We both lived in Minnesota. You know, I live in the suburb next to where you went to high school. Both both you and my children, both my children were born in the same hospital in Iowa. I had a couple of pictures that I took with you when I attended your musical performances, and I had my husband pull those out early on. I'm really bad with dates, but because he pulled those pictures out, I saw what years you and I were actually in person together. There was the year 2012 was the first time I saw you. And I realized when I was going through all of my writing and notes, when I was looking at my fiction writing, that that was one year when I was, there was many years when I did this uh, National Novel Writing Month in November, where you're given a challenge to write 50,000 words in a month. So you have to do it stream of consciousness, don't edit, you know, don't filter out things, just keep the story moving. And that was a year when I was working on a historical fiction novel about ghosts in a castle in Scotland, but it turned halfway through, it turned into this wild story about some kind of council of aliens or alien-human combinations of beings that were meeting in this castle every year to plan their missions. It included all kinds of experiments, changing human DNA, and (laughs) I thought it was the strangest thing. I mean, the storyline wasn't in the plan at all. It just happened and emerged out of that process. The second time I saw you was in 2016, and I was deep into creating this educational game for kids where the characters were aliens, and the goal of the game was for the players to join with the aliens to reprogram robots to be more healthy. And it just happened to be the the content, the context that I chose for imagination to help kids improve their social-emotional skills. just happened to be aliens again. In 2002, I noticed that I sketched out a fictional play. I was illustrating the different integral levels of development through fiction and was just playing around with that idea. But it all took, it all took place. This was, it was so odd to me because I, I never wrote fantasy or sci-fi. It all took place within this plot line that included these two guys getting abducted by aliens. And they were, they were taken on board a craft and interacting with the aliens. And they were all, a bunch of humans were being taken to another planet to seed a new civilization. And, you know, they managed to get out of it. But <laughs> towards the end of this play, I actually named you, you know, Stuart Davis <laughs> as one of the characters that popped in at the end. And that was such an odd thing to do. But again, you show up with the aliens in my fiction. Around 2003, I wrote another story that I just found recently that took place in Paris back in history, and it involved a very strange paranormal event with nefarious alien characters that did terrible things to humans and the human body. There were spirits, human spirits, negotiating and dealing with these aliens who are also masquerading as as humans. And I remember this story so distinctly because I was in writer groups over Twitter, and we shared our stories with each other. Uh, We had a lot of involvement with each other with short stories. I remember telling them how this story was given to me, completely formed. And it was so strangely different than what I usually wrote. It was actually disturbing to me, but I couldn't change it. There was nothing I could do to change any of that storyline. 
But this is just another example of how my fiction writing took unexpected turns into this alien territory without plans or intention, even not even being able to change it. I love writing fiction, the flow of symbols and storylines and the character speaking and allowing them to have their say. I love how unlimited it feels. You know, when you write nonfiction and research, you have to do a lot of cognitive structuring. But fiction, you can just allow it to take its own volition. When I think about this, fiction communicates how nothing else can. It gets in between the cracks and kind of opens us up, whether we're reading it or writing it. Our brains love stories. I love stories. I feel like my entire life, I can't get enough stories. There's a relaxation that comes through listening to stories. You know, you feel more. You allow more to get into your consciousness to feel and sense. And as I was going over this, it was the biggest irony because so many discussions among us experiencers is the worry that this anomalous experiencing that we're going through might be our imagination. We quickly bounce out of that, like, well, we know it's we know it's not our imagination, you know, that this stuff is real. It feels more real than constructs that may come into our imagination, whatever that is. But we're also afraid that others are going to discount and invalidate us because they believe, oh, that's just stuff you made up, right? You know, that's just imagination, that that, that term has been sublimated to lesser than, and that physical, rational reality is given more credibility. But for, for me, looking at this and re, regaining these memories and these patterns that I'm able to see, the most ironic thing is that I thought I was using my imagination the most, you know, letting these fictional stories flow out of my consciousness or the collective, wherever they come from. But the content that was given to me, that especially the completely formed, that came in under streams of consciousness, was so on the nose with exact details of what I'm discovering now, you know, 20 years later as part of my true reality. My fiction writing actually told me more truths. So what you're relating here is a 14-year span of inflection points where creative fiction operates as a mile marker helping you metabolize your own strange, deep history. Your creative powers formulated a cathartic rendering of what your deeper self was actually dealing with. Let's touch on this as well. Indulge me for a few minutes so we can take a long look down this alley. The fact that experiencers are often worried their history, the anomalous events, will be reduced to mere imagination fantasy or aberration that they misunderstand the nature of their own experience. Worse still, that they will be pathologized. As we know, things are currently upside down and backwards in our culture. Premium reality status is granted to the physical waking state consciousness. Less legitimacy is granted to dreaming, lucid dreaming, altered state, peak states, in this reductionist flatland cosmology, the further away we move from materialism and waking state awareness, less and less status legitimacy is assigned to these territories, including the anomalous. 
But the primordial lineage is creativity itself, all the way back to the Big Bang. One thing we know about the cosmos is that it is fundamentally creative, and that generativity is infinitely novel. No duplications occur. You can't put your foot in the same cosmic stream twice, so to say. From the moment anything can be observed, what is observed is infinite variety, inexhaustible ingenuity within and without. Inside that fundamental characteristic of the cosmos, primordial creativity, every time an artist enters into a state of creativity, they are actually in the most intimate possible union with the nature of reality itself. And this is important. Here we begin to see just how upside down our misconception of creativity, imagination, and in fact reality actually is. Because it's leveled as a pejorative it experiences. When people say to them, that's just your imagination, or that's probably the epiphenomenon of your mind. Well, in actuality, when we enter into depth with reality, we find that mind is not a derivative of matter, but that matter is derived of mind, derived of consciousness. As in the quantum axiom, consciousness is a singular, the plural of which is unknown. So matter is derived of mind, and mind itself is derived of creativity. But before there was a subject or an individuated consciousness which established a boundary, self on the inside, other on the outside, before that, there was creativity itself. Creativity gave rise to the cosmos, both corporeal and incorporeal. It gave rise to subjectivity, intersubjectivity, objectivity, interobjectivity, perspectivity. It gave rise to religion, philosophy, and every endeavor considered to be esteemed or redeeming in humanity. Now, tracking back to fiction writing, in your case, storytelling, artistry, which in the malaise of our culture has deteriorated to mere artifice or entertainment. It's mere ornament, patterned distraction that divests us of reality rather than enjoining us with it, connecting us with our primordial nature as it's intended and supposed to. This is why artists and experiencers must both ask themselves, A, what it means to be healthy in a sick culture, because they are members of the primordial lineage, and it is under fucking siege right now from a sea of surfaces, materialism, empiricism, disenchanting reductionism. So let's review, let's reframe your fiction writing and how it intersects with your history as an experiencer. From the context of this primordial lineage, then we can begin to see how authenticating this creative work is in the assembly of your anomalous genealogy. It's also a testament to the versatility and multidimensional nature of a human being. Creativity is the high watermark of our species. Each instantiation of it is a demonstration of our unity with the cosmos itself, not as an abstract idea, but as a felt first-person experience. Our native endowment is exuberant creativity. It's a testament to our cosmic nature, not a mark against it. So when you're an experiencer and you are creative and you use that creativity to enter into the language, the symbolic lexicon of non-human entities themselves, 
genuine mutuality begins to emerge. We can begin to outgrow the stasis arresting our species. Now, that's a very long tangent that I wanted to take and make note of, but it's an important one because the fiction you employed to help metabolize these experiences is the healthy, creative response from one alive, thriving in the primordial lineage. Ah, oh, Stuart, that's just a beautiful expression of the importance of creativity that we have sublimated in so much of our world. I just personally feel out of all the toolboxes that I have to pull from, that creativity is primary to help unpack and metabolize uh, this complicated world in the subtle realms and what we go through as experiencers. I also feel like it's one of the paths forward. There's, there's all kinds of human technologies that we have available through spirituality, cognitive pursuits, psychology, energy work, shamanism, magic, all of these things. But to me, I feel like, as you've talked about many times before, that creativity through expressions of whatever artistic form has this power to evoke, to evoke us on several levels. We're less guarded with art than we are with cognitive explanations. And it has a chance to reach us, whether we're creating it or experiencing it when it's done by other people. This evoking quality where it can reach so many more places in our being. I just think that's a beautiful expression of how you summarize that. So that was my first step in dipping my toe into how am I going to recover memories? The next stop was, okay, well, what else do I have that might help me out? And I found several of my journals. The one that I really focused on a lot was written in 1999 to 2000. There were different points in my life where I was having much higher spiritual experiences, intuition development. Those are the biggest categories I kind of dumped everything into. And this was a particularly high time. And so I would just, things would happen. I would notice things. I'd just write them down and move on. I just didn't even know how to process it. And as I was reading this, I had the extreme sense of, oh my gosh, I feel like I've written this entire journal for myself at this age right now for this time, like I was writing to myself in the future. Because there were so many things in it that had no meaning at that time, but has a lot of meaning to myself now. So as I, I have excerpts from that journal in front of me right now, and some examples of that is I talked a lot about, I was using tarot cards at the time. I was going through Reiki classes, training as a medical intuitive. This was also the time where a lot of that automatic driving that I mentioned early was, earlier was happening almost on a daily basis. I visited a museum where there was an Egyptian exhibit and had a, a really big experience of connection to a lot of the, wor the, the deity worship statues. I felt so much energy off of them, and it was, <laughs> it was so strong that I was really concerned there was something wrong with the building, that there might be an electrical problem. <laughs> and my husband and I were, were testing it out, and wanting to make sure that there wasn't something wrong in the building. After several experiments, we kind of realized, no, I, he said, no, I think it's just you. I think it's, you know, it was just that exhibit. It was just in that area. 
I wrote a lot about synchronicities that happened all the time through numbers and a lot about birds. I even wrote down that I was waking up frequently at 3.33 a.m., which is kind of a, I don't know, (laughs) as experiencers, we tend to talk about that a lot. It seems to be a common thing. I was talking about symbols talking to me all the time that everything felt connected in the world and across things. I I had this experience where a celestial being identified itself to me. I was told that it was my twin brother. I didn't quite understand that. I, I wondered if there was another child in the womb with me. I didn't know if this was energetic or literal, physical, but this celestial being named Isaac I learned a lot about who he was. He was a healer. He helped me out with medical intuitive skills and different things that I was doing. So I had a relationship with a being, but didn't even know that that was a thing. It it just appeared to me. So I went with it. Felt very true and authentic. I also had this obsession with twins, a boy and a girl. And I thought, well, maybe it's this experience with the celestial being. I noticed trigger words in here. So I stayed home from work one day trying to integrate some of these experiences that I was having with a celestial being, and I used the term anomalous cognition. My mind is acting outside my body and out of the current time stream. And I didn't even know that I really knew the word anomalous or had time distortions. And here I'm writing this to myself. I wrote that there was this deep subconscious place where there was balance and peace. And I said that there was a decision made, one that would manifest the peace of mind. And I said, I feel a deep sense of sovereignty. And I thought, whoa, I don't even use that word. (laughs) It means something to me now. I saw a lot of symbols of renewal and regeneration and healing. I talked about grounding, which I didn't even know was a thing with me. I wrote, I've been thinking lately, there are a lot of people in my life that I cannot see. They live with me. We talk. I know them well, but they have never existed in the physical world as I do. I think my love runs the deepest for them besides my husband. I don't remember writing that at all. I said, I feel free to engage them for the first time in my life. I was given permission. I don't know. I was reading this stuff. It really hit me hard because I just feel like, Once I had children, I just forgot about a lot of this. This in February of 2000, my parents were still alive and my mom was in a nursing home. She was going in and out of some dementia. She had Parkinson's, but she had lucid moments. And all of a sudden in February, she looked at me and she said, you know, I wish you had a baby. And and she hadn't really talked about that with me. And I had an infertility condition. I'd been married for 15 years and went through a miscarriage, but didn't think I would have kids. And when she said that, I thought, oh, you know, that's nice of her to say that. But it was in an unusually lucid moment. It kind of struck me strangely. You know, this was on February 9th. And over the next few days, I had another one of those waves of both physical symptoms, stayed home from work. There was a lot moving through me. There was all these strong body sensations. I couldn't really explain it. I did some medical intuitive work on myself and I was just kind of examining my body and it went to my ovaries and I saw that there were some kind of golden eggs in there that would conceive twins on my left side. 
So I just sent a lot of light, you know, thought, well, that's really interesting. And I said to myself and wrote down that I was, I knew I was going to have boy girl twins. This was exactly three months later, I conceived and knew that it was boy and girl before we had scans, which ended up to be true. And exactly one year from these visions and my mom communicating with me is when my children were born and they were boy girl twins. I also noticed that there was a lot of things happening in my physical world. I was told once when we were eating out at a restaurant that there was some secret that I would become aware of. It was kind of weird language, so I just discounted it. There was um, After I got that message, there was a large spark that rose out of a candle in this restaurant, and I could see light beings moving in my periphery. I didn't know what that was, so I just sort of let it go. In the next month, I started commenting about all these electronic issues. Back then, it was more like message machines were acting up. I was receiving numerous messages over and over again where there was no one there, which had never happened before. My husband and I were joking about, oh, it must be coming from another world. and They can't talk because we would also get static and weird noises. <laughs> and I noticed that I wasn't sleeping much during that time. There was a lot of high synchronicities. The first thing I noticed in the next entry is that my handwriting was starting to look significantly different, like someone else had written it. And I wrote that I was starting to see these copper orange colored lighted beings outside. There were blue and white orbs covering the areas and the trees. And that was also the day that we learned that my husband's grandma had died. And there were all kinds of symbols happening around me. I was starting to communicate with spiritual guides inside is what I called them. I started having all these different strange experiences with animals outside and birds. There was times where I could take my mind to other locations and see places that I'd never seen before. That happened once with my husband where he came back to tell me what this place was like. I said, nope, don't tell me. And I just started describing the whole place. And we just, I don't know, we just thought, oh, that's just really interesting. It's just intu something intuitive. I noticed that there were nights where I had these energy surges through my body, this tingling energy. And I always wondered what that was, you know, that this is something I've experienced now many times. And I actually wrote down that there was elbow pain and weird skin on my left elbow. And that's where all the marks are happening on my body now. And here this is written 22 years ago. I saw lots of swirling blue and red mists and objects and orbs. And you know what? A year later, I had children and forgot all about all of these occurrences. And here I am reading in my own handwriting that, oh, yes, you have had a few strange things happen, but you forgot. Isn't memory interesting how it operates? Very interesting. And it's unusual to have such comprehensive documentation as you do with your journals. You kept copious, meticulous journals. We have these in your own hand. Add to that the fact that many of these events were experienced by multiple parties. You've been married for 36 years. You have years of your creative work highlighting anomalous subtext, and you are a clinician whose specialty is the assessment of human interiors. You have stacks of original papers and documents corroborating this time from your years with the Air Force, which we'll get to. 
So many sources with which to examine memory. Your husband kept journals as well, which we'll get to. Yes, this verifies your account, but also important for other experiencers to hear this because this is so rarely the case. Experiencers would love to have such robust corroboration of their histories, but they almost never have that resource, either in their personal life or their family's history, that genealogy of the strange. If each experiencer had such resources, I think their perception of their own lives would be quite different and improved. In my own case, I've kept a careful diary of my anomalous experiences since 2010. Sometimes when I go back and read my own diary over the past 12 plus years, I'm astonished at the detail, but also at what I have forgotten. These should be the most indelible events of my life, and yet a paradoxical quality of the anomalous is that we forget the unforgettable. And it is not from absent-mindedness. There is a quality to experience or amnesia, which we could describe as being like a time capsule, a seed buried in time that sprouts after years or decades of dormancy. The events are not oblib the events are not obliterated. It's not proper amnesia. Rather, they spend time in suspended animation, trapped in amber, until they are later reanimated, carrying the original emotional force and life-changing signals. I wanted to note this because so many experiencers would feel validated and confident if they had multiple confirming sources as you have. I just think that's a wonderful point for any experiencer that thinks about this a little bit. This note taking is actually a very validating process. You know, like you can always start taking notes anytime. And it's part of the process of dealing with this moving target of memories, what we remember, what we don't, what comes up at different times, what submerges again, this in and out of subtle realms. And then back in the physical realm, it's, it's our part of our integration. And we can't take it all in all at once. But it's very validating and interesting when you start seeing patterns over time, or when all of a sudden something will make sense that you wrote down years ago or weeks ago. It's almost like a really good strategy to start working with your own life. It's as simple as just writing down what happens or what you're thinking. I love that. So I continued on with how am I going to become a little more conscious? What does this mean? What else is above the water? I love your way of describing what's below the water and what's above the water. What's conscious? What is partially conscious? What else can I pull out of that? So what I also knew for sure about myself is that I've always had this strange experience of a French past life. It's, it never seemed unusual to me. That's why I never even said it the first time. Oh, nothing ever strange has ever happened to me because when something has been a part of your life for decades or most of your life, it normalizes as, well, this is just part of me. And one of them for me is this French past life. I'm constantly getting pinged with, I have French stuff all over my house. I have attempted to study the French language several times, but getting through the initial course is always hard for me because I start getting 
French speakers in the back of my mind and they won't be quiet <laughs> and they keep talking and talking and I don't know what they're saying. And I, so I have to stop studying, <laughs> studying French and this has gone on since high school. So this started coming to my mind again. And I thought, well, that has been signaling me for a really long time. And so maybe there's some trauma there. Maybe there's something that needs to be cleared out. I don't know. You know, there was so much happening, like, well, let's just deal with the French people. And, you know, maybe I'll have some more space to deal with some other things since this is constantly coming up. So I had planned a regression with a therapist locally in Minnesota to just do this. Like, I just wanted to get it out of the way. So I showed up and thought, okay, you know, I'm going to see if there was some kind of tragic death. Maybe I had a hard life. I don't know what that is. I knew that it was a recent past life early 20th century, late 19th. I knew that I was a writer in that lifetime. I had dreams. I knew of locations I'd lived. I knew the streets, some of the people. These things have been emerging for a few decades. So I went into this regression and I, I was expecting to find out what that was. What I got, what I got instead was going back into the life of a little French girl who was around seven to eight years old. She was living with her family. It was early, early 20th century Paris in an apartment on the second floor. And she had a really good life. She had a great family life, the community, everything. But she had a deep, dark secret. It was the fact that she had an entire life of contact and being taken by aliens. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't even go back to a past life without the aliens. And <laughs> so... This regression took me to on, on board a craft as a child, and I was practicing skills with these very detailed, unusual blocks. They had glass red dots protruding out of them that would light up, floating these blocks in the air. And there was a humanoid-looking alien that would see over us, all of us children. There was no hair, big eyes. I really liked looking into the eyes of this humanoid. It was the only thing that made me feel good and better in the body of that child. I didn't want to leave. I could, I could feel what that felt like. I looked into her eyes and I felt my body levitate and it was surprising. It was the first time that it happened. It was an amazing experience. I felt like that humanoid showed me how, how to do that. And then I was to repeat. It was really quiet there. There was about 12 to 15 children there was no noise, no talking, no words. Later in the regression, I went to the end of my life. I died at around age 55. I, had, I did have a happy life, but I never told anyone about that contact. I had memories of being taken up into beams. I didn't want to ever go outside when I was a child. And I died in that lifetime with resignation that would never stop. And it, I felt that resignation feeling that I have felt through the experiences I've had over the past few months, I did help this woman, this past life of mine, this woman I was, more peacefully and willingly go into the light because I had stayed as long as possible to protect my own children and, and grandchildren in that lifetime. This is where this regression made me aware of some patterns in my current life that I thought needed some attention. That resignation, that fear of not sharing, of wanting to protect others, I could feel that deeply. And I wondered, too, 
I reviewed the life with my own children and wondered if I had had hypervigilance in wanting to protect them. And I felt like I was always consciously trying not to do that with my children. Like it took a lot of effort. I did attachment parenting. I would still do it again. We were together a lot. I homeschooled my children for many years. So we were doing co-sleeping for over a decade. And I felt that energetically, there was a hypervigilance around me and my children and parenting. And I took some time to look into that to see if there was something to that. I also had an experience where the urn of, with the ashes of my firstborn child that was born 25 years ago started telescoping in at me like it was trying to get my attention. And I, I didn't know what that was until I talked to a medium and they said, well, sometimes objects will try to get your attention. And I thought, well, there's something else from a child of mine I ended up going through a big process of examination, and the result of that was that I, I thought, you know, my children are turning 21 in a few weeks, and I think I need a big ceremony ritual to release my children into the power of their own abilities and celebrate our lives together and the strengths that they have developed. They've had a lot of struggles the past few years. I did a lot of things over the their 21st birthday. It was a very emotional day, you know, reviewing our wonderful life together, bringing my parents in who passed 20 years ago, celebrating my children. I told them I trusted their abilities to live their lives as they saw, saw fit, that I trusted their strengths and abilities and how much they've grown and that we'd always be there for them but that I was releasing them into their own agency. And for me inside, I was releasing them from my hypervigilance and fear that something may happen to them that I could feel that was in there connected. Since then, they've had tremendous, amazing growth into adulthood and independence. And it was one of the most powerful things I've done with my family to acknowledge the complexities of our relationship across energies of all kinds. This is how work on the subtle level can transform into actions on the physical plane and can impact all of us in our energy bodies and heal the past all the way into the future and help us become more of who we are. I've put a lot of thought into how much to talk to my children about my experiences and when the timing of that I had a good support network to process through, to hold me through trauma and fear, to figure it out. It took me weeks to tell my husband, but he's been there every step of the way, supportive. The support groups, my discussions with you and other, other people. So since I had that support, I took a lot more thought into when and how much I would share with my children and to do it from an integrated place of strength so that it wouldn't put a burden on them. You know, this is just the position I was in and the choice that I could make. There were times when I would tell them specifically experiences that I had had. The timing of my children and their own needs has been different. I've been choosing how much to tell each one based upon how much is going on in their life. What I haven't held back on 
is being totally transparent and authentic with them about the support that I'm receiving, how much I'm talking about my life, because that's different. They haven't seen me do that. How much I'm going to support groups and how meaningful those have been to me. I've been honest with them that I'm going through processing trauma and some of the things that have helped me because I know they have too. And I allow them to ask any questions that they're ready to ask. And I let them know that any question they want to ask me is okay, that I'm an open book for them. So I'm allowing them to have their own pace, but I'm also bringing up protection practices, talking to guides, normalizing this connection to interiors. I don't have to share exact experiences in order to talk about how I connect with my interiors because that can always be there. And those have been powerful discussions. I have seen great changes in them and their acceptance of, oh, this is a new thing that we're talking about. I can see the development of how they're embracing a lot of those practices and how much more open they've been to also receiving energy treatment, shaman sessions, you know, just different things that they're willing to experiment with. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And it's what we can all share as experiencers with those around us. What a powerful ritual, releasing your children into their own agency. How that ripples outward, inward, in surprising ways. And what a creative, loving response to hypervigilance, inverting it to the positive expression of protection through autonomy and creativity. It would be beautiful to see such rituals become standard in the suite of tools experiencers employ in the coming generations. But let's continue with your next experiences. So my next experience in trying to recall memories was kind of, I don't know, I was rolling around in my memories in my 20s to see if I landed on anything unusual one day. Seeing if there was any kind of vortex point or anything that stood out, anything I thought was strange. Nothing was really coming through. And I was about ready to just do something else. When all of a sudden, a memory dropped in that was so extremely vivid. And it was absolutely nothing in the time frames that I was even contemplating. It dropped in all the way back to 1980. It was prom night when I was with a high school boyfriend, and it was in the middle of the night between 3 and 5 a.m., and we were parked in a car out on a road in the country. (laughs) It sounds like one of those movies. (laughs) But I couldn't even have recalled this moment if I would have tried, even just to remember in general. But It was really immediately vivid. It was unlike any memories that I was recalling that were kind of vague. Nothing was really settling in. I all of a sudden had a big body reaction when this dropped in. I suddenly inhaled. I was starting to feel feelings of shock that I was identifying from previous times. And I realized that I was getting sort of a full body recall of something. This memory recall was so convincing that I even decided to follow through and contact this person. I still had contact after all these years and just see if I could, you know, I I didn't really have anything to bring up, but I wanted to see if I could verify the details that I was remembering, you know, the sequence, the events that night, the car that we were in, 
and the details that I was seeing in that memory. We both remember a really bright light coming up from the left side of the car. And it just felt so compelling and real. I just wanted to have something verified to see if at least part of it was okay in my memory. I didn't think I'd get any further other than kind of seeing that car and that light coming up, coming through the back window. And when we were discussing this one day, you, you mentioned using a little bit of diffuse thinking, you know, just letting your mind rest, you know, rather than that trying to go into highly cognitive type thinking. And I thought, well, I'll give it a try. I don't know if I'm going to get anything. But I did start getting more conscious memories dumping into my mind. I had different flashes and different portions of it come forward. They weren't always in sequence, but I was able to piece them together in sequence later. I had flashes of seeing a soybean field and the very, very small plants. The flash of bright light that was coming in, I was sitting in the passenger seat and I had very specific memories of looking back at the window and could see very highly detailed images of the condensation on the window because it was cold out that day when the light was coming in. And I could see this bright light that was very intense and, and hurting my eyes. I noticed that there was no noise of car of a car driving on the gravel when this bright light came up. I could see the clothes that we were wearing, the changes in the light wasn't just one light of cars going by. It, it was a strobe light, and it changed to become more intense. I was able to sort of see my boyfriend look frozen and non-reactive to everything. He wasn't looking. I didn't even know if I could move my head. I knew I could move my eyes, and I was blinking, but I was starting to realize that I was paralyzed in that moment, and I could feel this wave of terrifying feelings at these flashing lights. The third time I kind of went into this, at this point, there was a dark and non-visual element where I, I could only feel this slight pulling and upwards movements of my body, like being tugged through something. And I started to feel calmer. And I realized I was being pulled through the, the roof of the car into this very wide beam of light. It, was, it felt so unusual to remember this stuff consciously in those moments and how it was full body remembering. As I was moving up into this beam, I was still able to see at this point and looking downward and I, could, I was just staring at the border of where the light of this somewhat circle was illuminating the ground where there was gravel, the top of the car. And then I could see a bit of the field again. It was dark out, but it was illuminated inside these beams. I was looking at such details, the tiny buds of these soybeans, these barely detectable rows. I was staring at these lines, this weird quality of light. I don't even know where my boyfriend was. I couldn't see him. I wasn't aware of him. The next vision I saw was looking up close inside this beam of light right in front of my face. And I was staring at, I don't know, it was like particles or vibrating things. It was very subtle. But I was just kind of transfixed 
at the elements in this light. As I was going into this, I suddenly had an interruption in these memories of the ETs who intruded my memories, and they were showing me this lighted pinpoints network again. They were showing me how that was how I was being pulled upwards and what I was sensing and feeling. And it seemed like another part of my lesson that we're showing you this back in time and where this exists. They often showed me how this exists in energy currents and now here too. I thought that was so odd that they were suddenly in a memory. They're showing me no boundaries. When I was inside this beam, I had the realization that I wasn't breathing and no body awareness like this paralysis or light body, I wasn't even sure, but I noticed as I was floating up in the beam, getting closer to this craft, that I suddenly pulled out of my body. I was in two positions. I could see my body from below, front of my body looking down, and I wasn't sure if that was happening in my memories in the current time or back when this was actually happening or if they're the same thing. There was kind of a multi-positional element there. What I did notice is that I had that profound sense of sad resignation flood into myself as I watched my physical body get closer to that craft and was going to disappear soon. And my current self was flooded with that deep sense. And it took, a, it took several days and weeks to process through that feeling of resignation, that blank stare feeling that I would get sometimes. You know, those mild waves of shock started moving through my body over the next several days that I'd had many times before that is kind of a marker that there's a lot of truth here. In addition to it feeling real, my body had to process through and feel and signal me with these feelings of trauma and shock. So I had a lot of reactions just to my first conscious rememberings. After that happened and my feet, my body was dealing with the integration of that, I had a really strange dream. Just <laughs> I think it was a couple days later. It's one of my favorite dreams because <laughs> it was a really intense dream. I woke it up previously, but an hour before with all kinds of buzzing in my body, all those tones starting again in my ears. And this dream was where I ended up in some kind of lab. I called it a human lab in my notes. I think it was a lab working on humans. There was lots of stuff all over, massive equipment, glassware. And there was these two guys dressed in gray coveralls, workman apparel. My one was trying to capture me. It's kind of really on the nose for grays (laughs) as symbols to represent them. I remember I was running around and trying to get away from these guys. And I broke some kind of gauge and they were really upset at me, but I didn't care. I was I was more interested in trying to outsmart them and trying to plan to escape. They seemed to move kind of slow. They weren't very bright. And so I was trying to outwit them. And then (laughs) I was at the door of this lab, this room, and there was someone leaving down the hall. And it was, (laughs) it was Stephen Colbert. (laughs) And I was screaming at him as he was walking away because I was mad. I was really insistent that, you know, he needs to come back and stop this nonsense. Some kind of shit's gone awry and he needs to, you know, take this seriously. <laughs> I was 
basically continuing to try to sabotage whatever it was that was going on. I don't know that <laughs> that was a really vivid dream and continued to have like I kept waking up every couple hours at night. There was all kinds of headaches and buzzing in my body. I had high pitches in my ears after that. My tailbone and my vertebrae were pulsating with heat and light flashes were happening in my periphery. There was different visions waking up and I'd wake up suddenly coughing like I couldn't breathe. Again, I'd kind of gotten used to this. It doesn't mean it's any more comfortable. It's really interesting to watch how our bodies communicate and how it processes through this stuff. And this was still soon after these conscious recollections. Now, it was still another two months where I was on and off, you know, thinking about this, processing through this experience, because this is really sort of the first time that I had memories of a contact experience of that nature in my current life. And it was, I don't know, it was really significant. So it was two months later that we decided to do a regression on this because so much was coming out. It was like it was asking for some work to be done in my estimation. And I realized when I was, my body was floating up to that ship that I really didn't want to go inside that craft alone. A regression was a safer way to do that for me. Now, just a little bit about how I feel towards hypnosis. I'm trained in hypnosis in several different versions of it. And I've been using it for the last 15 years in treatment. I was trained by a faculty of medical doctors at the University of Minnesota for the last several years. They use hypnosis to help children get through medical procedures, you know, to treat all kinds of medical and mental health conditions. One of the faculty travels to other countries and teaches women how to go through childbirth when they don't have anesthesia to take the pain down. And the faculty members that trained me had been using hypnosis in their own lives for 30, 40 years at least, several of them. And they would routinely get dental care, even root canals without anesthesia. There was one person who was in her 70s, and she went through, <laughs> she went through hip replacement surgery without anesthesia. And I'll never forget that because it's like, geez, you know, we have a lot of untapped potential in our minds and how we can use, use these different states to help ourselves. Children, I've used hypnosis with children in healing procedures for years. They're better at than we are. You know, they, all of us naturally go in of, in and out of trance states all the time. You know, we kind of stare out the window, go quiet. We're kind of processing and we kind of come back and go, oh, where was I thinking? What was I supposed to be doing? We go in and out of these trance states. It's a natural part of our being, our abilities, our states. I have long since had a great trust in the trance states and how powerful they are for healing and how much they can plug us into subtle energy fields to tap into our own creative potential to heal ourselves. To me, it's like almost like um, an acupuncture. We're directing the energies to our self-healing. And so I hadn't learned regression in this particular context until I went to see Yvonne Smith's training. But I was looking forward to this because I think it's a powerful tool when used the right way to open up to new healing opportunities. Yeah, let's pause and highlight some misunderstandings about hypnosis, which bears repeating, bears our attention. So number one, beginning with the trope of 
stage hypnosis, stunt hypnosis, people getting people to act like a chicken in front of a crowd, which bears no resemblance to the true utility of hypnosis. And then number two, the misplaced desire for hypnosis to function like ballistic forensic analysis. So in your case, for example, we have conscious recall of the prom night event. You spent months doing what I call a genealogy of the strange, going through historical journals, conferring with multiple parties. You yourself are trained in hypnotherapy. You're a licensed psychologist. And we are months along in our one-on-one sessions before hypnosis enters the picture. The efficacy of hypnosis is in its results, and they are beyond dispute, whether it's medical applications such as childbirth, root canals, hip replacement surgery, or healing and integration for experiencers, abductees, and contactees. Hypnosis produces the desired outcome with great reliability. We don't need hypnosis to prove anything, is my point. The above-water events, which are consciously recalled with no assistance, are contiguous with the below-water details, which are engaged in hypno. Generally, we are expanding understanding of that which is already recalled, most importantly producing the change and outcome experiencers desire in their lives. That's how we measure whether or not hypnosis is useful. Sometimes knowledge and further details around events are what is desired, but often, ultimately, experiencers are seeking relief and healing from ontological shock, hypervigilance, phobias that are totally out of proportion with any discernible point of origin. The mischaracterization of hypnosis needs to stop because it's inaccurate and it undermines a tool that helps experiencers heal. That's the point. That's the objective. Help and heal experiencers. And I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah, totally agree, Stuart. It's a powerful healing modality and it touches into these energy bodies and parts of ourselves and is very, very respectful of us as humans. And we are in control when we are in hypnosis. We are in more control. It is self-guided and our higher selves are in charge. And that's one of the reasons I trust it. And I've seen hundreds of hours of this done and experienced it myself. And I can't say enough about it for those who are really good at doing this and use it the right way. So when I went into this hypnosis with you for the first time, again, it's all about intention, right? And exactly what you said, you know, my intention was simple. What do I need to know that will help me? That's it. That's the intention I went in with. I entered into those conscious memories that I already had as my entry point, And I saw new vivid details of the environment, my feelings. I moved past outside the craft through that blackout zone. I ended up in a room with greys who are working on my paralyzed body inside that craft. And I could feel some vibrations. But that was it. You know, everything else was immobile. I saw for the first time in this particular, you know, I was 14 years old at this time, that there were beings of some kind being taken out of my abdomen through the outside. And I had a really big reaction to that within this experience of, you know, it was very shocking. I was really upset and angry. I knew these ETs 
that were on this craft. They were familiar to me. There was a mantis watching over everything from behind me to the right. I was telepathically communicating with it. This was the one that identified itself as the doctor. It's the one that was always with me. And I was basically having a 14-year-old feisty tantrum with this, with this mantis. And I, I was really upset and demanding answers. Said, you know, I just, I don't understand this. I don't know what's going on. It would basically just kind of wait for me to calm down. It was just quiet, which would make me more upset. And then give me all kinds of lame answers about, well, you know, this is part of the plan, blah, 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 whatever that is. And <laughs> I just wasn't buying it. It was just, I was just not going to have it. And we clearly had a long-term relationship at this point because it didn't intimidate me at all. Basically, at one point, the mantis sent something over to me. It was like a small exploding star in my awareness that expanded. It was a sensation, a state. I'm not sure what it was. It felt very spacious and quiet. And in that moment, I instantly understood. Like that was the sense that I got. I felt like in that moment that I was being shown the truth of the universe, that everything made sense. Looking back and going through that experience, it was kind of like a causal state of some kind. But the mantis was there with me. And so I kind of redefine it as a truth, not the truth. You know, that there was something about that that was being transmitted to me. There was a lot of information being given. And the next thing I remember was being taken to another room with lots of people. I was walking around at this point. And all of these people had had procedures done. And I was taught to give them comfort by touching them on the shoulders and transferring these feelings of bliss. And it felt really easy, and I was really grateful to be able to have that ability to alleviate their suffering. It took a lot of processing coming out of this. There's a lot of mixed feelings about all of this that happened, and it took a lot of integration. I kind of look back at this as kind of my ET contact coming-of-age story, where I transitioned from whatever this training is as children to the abduction scenarios and having this job of helping alleviate suffering of other people there that were going through similar things. So glad to know more information. Yeah. I did a lot of work of integrating my feelings and beliefs and reactions, especially to abduction and hybridization programs after this. 14 years old, taken on prom night, beings taken from your body, then you are conscripted to alleviate the suffering of other humans also on the craft. This all points to the long-term effects for women who go through these kinds of experiences, chronic illnesses, reproductive complications through life, inexplicable events such as vanishing pregnancies, emotional, social issues, struggles with intimacy, hypervigilance, as we've talked about several times. There's a mobile of long-term effects that are unique to women. And in fairness, healings also occur. New capacities emerge, but it's a largely untold story that females who are in these programs for life, often intergenerationally, that for them, the liabilities can be enormous. You know, those are really good points because as some of these conscious memories come through, it starts to put more context 
it makes more sense as to some of the things that have happened to me throughout my life. They start to make more sense. This next sort of adventure in the genealogy of the strange is something that is another time when some conscious memories came through that surprised me. So back to the very beginning in the first time that I met with you, one of the strange things that I brought up was this missing time with my childhood friend, Carol. And I hadn't ever gone back to that because I didn't think I'd ever be able to get any more memories out of that. But as I was going through this process, I thought, well, I do have some memories of that day that have been replaying in my mind the same way over and over all of these decades. I mean, like this was almost, almost 50 years ago. And as I was talking to my husband about Carol, I hadn't realized how often I've talked about her over the years. My children know who she is. My whole family knows a lot about her. And so it's just interesting how she has stayed a part of my life for so long. Around April 8th of this year, I wondered if I would hear anything from Carol because I've had a lot of spirit activity this year. And I always remember her on her birthday every year. I'm terrible with birthdays, the exact dates, but I always remember Carol's birthday. And so I just thought on April 8th, oh, I wonder if I'll hear from her and then just let it go. But I thought, you know, I should write down my conscious memories. So we were about eight or nine, I believe. And this was in the summer, almost exactly this time of year, at the beginning of the summer. And we always went swimming and we went to a park right next door to the pool. We were in this small fort structure that was up on a ladder on a platform. It was a very obvious place on the top of a hill in this very small park in this tiny town in Iowa that we lived in. And I have very specific memories of the weather-worn faded plywood, the, the swim towels that we were laying on that were wet. You can smell the chlorine. Our hair was still wet. And we were just laying on these towels with our feet up against these platform walls. And we were very animated and talking the space was so small in there, but it was some place we liked to hang out. They weren't complete walls. There were gaps, so you could see through them very easily. I remember the sun coming through the leaves of the trees that we were staring at above through the cracks and how warm it was. I remember the red metal X-shaped bars on the sides of the supports of this structure. This would have been shortly around noon or soon after that day. This is something we did typically very often. I mean, Carol and I were free-range kids in the 1970s. This is a very small town, so we were just able to wander around. And then I have a second place that I remember where we were in a different location in the park where there was play equipment. It was very highly visible. Not too many memories down there. But the next memory I have is that we arrived home. I don't remember walking, but as we walked into my house... Both my parents were standing there, and they were, they were really highly alarmed at us. My most vivid memory is my mom's reaction, because both my parents were so easygoing. Nothing really worked them up. They'd raised five kids before me. I mean, it, it was just such a big reaction from her, and she was demanding. You know, she's like, where were you two? And they were, both my parents were scared. They were insistent. They were upset. 
my father never, <laughs> never came into these kinds of discussions and he was there all upset. And Carol and I were just big eyed shocked because this was so out of the ordinary. I don't even remember ever getting in trouble like that at those ages for going anywhere. We always came home at mealtimes. You know, this wasn't the age of carrying water bottles around and taking food with you. You know, you basically come home when you're hungry, which is about every two hours, right? You know, you you just stop into your house because it's only a couple blocks from wherever you're at. And we were so confused at this reaction. My mom quickly picked up the phone and was calling Carol's mother saying they're here. They just walked in. And I heard her say, I don't know. They didn't say, you know, like she was just so upset. My mom came back. She said, well, you know, you need to have an explanation. And Carol and I couldn't say anything. She says, we've had the police out looking for the two of you for the last several hours. You weren't at the park. Where were you? I don't think we were able to say anything, but I'll tell you, we talked about this for years because it was so strange and it was so highly, highly out of the ordinary and we never could explain it. That's what I remember. That's what's replayed all these years. And I, I honestly didn't think I'd get any, get any more information. But as we, as I was moving along, just a couple days after Carol's birthday, I woke up early in the morning and was doing my meditations and emptying my mind. And all of a sudden, I got a download of memories that began to emerge. I mean, there was no interruption in my thoughts at all with anything else. It was like a movie being played that I just had to sit and watch. And we were suddenly in that second location in the park. There's a lot of big trees and fields beyond that. You can see the big blue open sky with some clouds. And I saw a craft coming in from the south, southwest. And it came over the fields. And Carol and I were just standing there transfixed. No thoughts. We were just frozen. We weren't talking. We were just watching this craft come in as it moved over the fields and then over the trees. I don't remember what happened in a little bit of a gap there. The next thing I was aware of is that I saw beings and and I went up into some kind of beam. There was a there was a vibration feeling. There wasn't much visual this time. It was a little bit different than going up in the beam later when I was older. I said that I was on a ship. That's what I called it then. And there were these isolated flashes of memory. I was doing these levitation exercises of myself. It wasn't of objects this time. I thought it was really fun. And I enjoyed doing that. Carol was there with me. There was another ET being a similar humanoid that kind of similar to that French childhood memory one. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if it's the same one or a different one. I mean, it was, it felt the same, I guess I should say it, it felt the same. I recognized a few of the kids. I don't know if that means that they were from other times up there on the craft or if they actually lived there. I just know I had that recognition. The next scene that I had in there in the memories was a procedure that was being done to me. There was an instrument that was going in through my left eye that blacked out all my vision. And there was something being inserted into my head on the left side. And I had this recollection of, oh my gosh, not again, this is happening. And it just stopped at that point. I, I don't have any other recollections of what was going on there. What I do remember is in this summer, this was the summer of, of 1974, Five. I have very definite mem 
memories of having sleep problems. And in this big old house that we lived in, I was the only one sleeping upstairs because all my siblings had left home. And I would not sleep up there anymore. I was sleeping downstairs on the sofa all summer, at least, maybe longer. Uh, My parents slept downstairs. And so this was to be closer to them. I had some health issues that I remember. And there was also this really unusual event that happened that summer. Right next to where I was sleeping and my parents were sleeping was our dining room. And we had had a ceiling, a drop-down ceiling installed of those, you know, there's a, the metal frame with the, with the ceiling tiles that, that float in there. And one night, in the middle of the night, this, <laughs> this entire ceiling came down. And when I say the whole ceiling came down, only the panels. So the metal frames, the grid of metal frames that held it up, stayed intact. None of those came down, but every every single one of those ceiling panels came crashing down. It was so terrifying, the sound that that made. And it crashed into a china cabinet that we have and broke the glass. As a matter of fact, I still have that china cabinet, and I know exactly which panel was broken and replaced in that incident. But I, I remember the guy who came to repair it, who had put it up. He was so confused. He's like, that couldn't happen. You know, what did you guys do? He was... <laughs> He was accusing my parents of, you know, his job, you know, the job that he did was fine. We must have done, we must have done something to it for something like that to happen. But uh, what I do remember too, is that for the rest of my life, I avoided that park. The role that park played in my life, it's unusual. There was reunions that happened there. I somehow managed to avoid it even in those gatherings. I never went to that park as a middle school or high school student. It would be the ideal place to hang out. It was a small town. There's hardly anywhere to go. But I do know that that was a thing. I had a lot of other memories rolling out of this that are very significant for other processing that I'm doing and putting together my family story. So I was really thankful. I feel like Carol gave me those memories consciously to help me out on my path. So that was kind of a special memory recall that happened not too long ago. Wow. Knowing there is this missing time event, holding attention over it until further conscious recollections come through, initially studying this multiple person missing time event, feeling how out of proportion the emotions were from the parents and the neighbors, clues that don't add up. Why were the reactions so out of line with what they normally would have been in this more innocent time? Why were the police looking for you? Where did eight hours go? Then remembering the craft coming in over the field, recognizing other children on board the craft, that feeling of, oh my God, not again. We'll speak later about MRIs and other testing that's been done in connection with your history and your symptomology sleep issues, refusal to sleep upstairs, the health issues, uh, and oh my God, the entire ceiling collapsing in an utterly inexplicable manner. Well, now things are moving into proportion, right? Now, Now we begin to notice parity between the events and the emotional reactions to them. The way human bodies have been responding to the events is actually commensurate when we get this larger view of the events themselves. 
Then we have correspondence, but only after months of work using multiple practices, numerous modalities, doing the difficult work to gain insight. It's not an hour of hypno and then everything falls into your lap. This is meditation, dream work, genealogy, attunement, positive anomalous culture, perspective work, yes, hypno, talk sessions, and more. That's methodological pluralism in action. Deep work, over time, real results. Yeah, and that's a really good point about how much work this is because it's not just about the factual details of memories. It's about that whole body processing and what it means to integrate in these kinds of memories with the trauma that you experienced at the time and using your current resources as a person to be able to integrate that in. And one final note about this friend of mine, Carol. I've had a lot of spirit activity go on the last few months. And, you know, she's made herself noticed. She seems to be identifying herself as one of my guides who's always been there. She seems to be signaling me that there's more work to do about our relationship. She has been guiding me to remember our lives together as children. And it's very fresh and very new. And so, so much of what's brought forward can go on for days, weeks, months, even years. And I know that what Carol is helping me with right now is more processing, more awareness, and that we have some work to do together still. And I really appreciate that, and I'm, I'm open to that now. It's, it's easier to trust that. And this is another example to me of how we have relationships in our interiors. You know, spirits are relationships, and they, they help us. I have had this happen a few times where trusted, vetted spirits can be a part of our lives and help us with things. So this story is ongoing. Be sure to catch part three of our conversation with Ann Tyler. To book a one-on-one session with me, Stuart Davis, click the link in the show notes or go to theliminalmuse.com. Sessions focus on anomalous experience, contact with non-human entities, and also creativity as a spiritual path. Sessions are available both online or in person. If you are not a patron or a pluser, you are a Minus listener. Minus listeners are buried alive under an avalanche of writhing sea slugs. Patrons and plusers rest their double-jointed elbows on an open bar at the Soho in New York, not LA. Minus listeners lose their pets. Patrons and plusers write books minus listeners can't finish. Patrons and plusers' towels have always just come fresh from the dryer. Minus listeners get trapped under ice just as kidney stones arrive. Minus listeners check their email on their laptop as they're checking their email on their phone. Patrons and plusers eat all the fresh produce they buy. Minus listeners bite their toenails and drop their Benoit balls with each attempt to fondle them. 
Patrons and plusers have Benoit Mandelbrot balls, and the fractal geometry of their genitals counteracts fertility collapse. That's true. Click the link in the show notes to become a patron or a pluser to pretend the real you before you're not who you won't become. Minus listeners have imposter syndrome, and it's not just for realtors anymore! more 